Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. Each week, we talk about the craft beer business, pop culture, and whatever else is on our minds. I'm here with my co-host, the one and only Maria Cabre. Hola. Our first guest this week left a good corporate job to turn his passion for homebrewing into a business. Along with Kevin Antoon and Jamie Lee, he co-founded Southern Grist Brewing Company in Nashville, Tennessee. Fueled by his creative brewing style, Southern Grist quickly became one of the country's most acclaimed craft breweries. Since opening a small 450-square-foot brewery in East Nashville five years ago, Southern Grist has opened a second location with over 10,000 square feet production space and tap room. They now have over 750 unique beers in their portfolio. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jared Welch. How you doing, man? Good, good. Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I, uh, who else you got there with you from the uh, brewery? Yes, we brought uh, Kyle, uh, Kyle Arnold, affectionately known as The Bro. That's, that's his nickname. <laughs> he goes by even in his email. Uh, he is our creative director. Okay. So as I kind of move on to more of a production management role, he's the one who leads the brew deck. He's also a designer, so he does all of our labels, things like that. So awesome. he's a awesome. big driving force behind the brewery. All right. Well, we're going to jump right into this. So how did a Buckeye end up in uh, Music City, man? How did that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I, um, I, I went to college uh, for pharmaceutical business, of all things, and uh, getting a job. I, I kind of want to be like a healthcare salesperson. Getting a job in that industry is pretty tough for somebody just straight out of college with no sales experience. Right. So um, my then girlfriend, now a wife, her sister lived in Nashville, worked for a sales company. Said, "Hey, if you're looking to build your sales resume, um, we can uh, we can bring you down here." So I went ahead and just jumped from Ohio down to Nashville, and that was back in 2010, and I've I've been here ever since. So. When when did you guys open the brewery? When was the opening date for, for Southern Grist? Yeah, our first date of service was February 2nd, 2016. Nice. Um, so, you know, we're, we just had our fifth an- anniversary, um, but uh, it's, been, it's been a very quick and long five years. Nice, nice. So kind of heard and, and read that uh, Magic Hat number nine was your gateway beer. <laughs> From from macro to craft, how long after drinking that that first number nine did you start home brewing your own beer? Ah oh, man, it was pretty quick. So number nine definitely was that introduction for me, where I kind of tasted a beer and thought, "Wow, that's that's what beer can taste like." Um, so I jumped into the deep end pretty fast. I mean, it was an immediate. I'm going to start seeing what all these other Weird labels are, you know, I, I went to college in like a really small town where you kind of got your beer from a gas station or a convenience store. So they had a small craft selection, but I really just started uh, trying new things. I was the weird guy at parties my senior year of college where I would be bringing a six pack that cost just as much as most people's like 24 racks. So it was, um, it was a really, really, really quick uh, transition for me. And then, uh, what was uh so what i mean you got into the tra- you know you transitioned into home brewing what, oh yeah home brewing. what was your so, what was your first beer that you guys actually what did you brew what was your first homebrew you would say that you my brewed? first homebrew was a uh an extract uh hefeweizen actually <laughs> okay. uh, I, I had read a bunch of books done done quite a bit of research before i ever brewed my first beer necessarily and uh, I remember it was something on the beer advocate message boards that I, I had read from people who were very, very active there that I kind of looked up to as a good knowledge base that that was kind of one of those beers, especially when you're not controlling uh, fermentation temperatures. Right. The Hefeweizen is a great way to go for somebody kind of jumping off. So I did that. I, I love that style of beer. We don't necessarily brew it here at Southern Grist, but it is one of my favorite like summer crusher styles. And my first homebrew actually was really, really good. 
Oh. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people have more stories about it. You're, you're the, like, less than 1% I know. that <laughs> first homebrew yeah. is good because mine was terrible. Dude, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't start ruining beer until my third or fourth batch, so it was... <laughs> right, my, mine exploded all over the ceiling of my house, so... Yeah, I mean, most of the people that I've talked to were like, yeah, no, the first batch we ever did was horrible. Was it during the time of homebrewing that you met Kevin and Jamie, or when along this process did you meet those guys? Yeah, I started homebrewing right out of college. Um, when I moved down here, I kind of transitioned from the back patio of Turkey Fryer Burning, because I was in an apartment, to more that that stovetop style. Right, right. Uh, but I, I was able to at least keep it up, because it was really, truly was like a passion for me, and it was something that I was so interested in. Um, I used to like listen to the Brewing Network while I was at the gym and stuff like that. Like, it was, J- you Jameel, know, something I was. Was that Jamil Zanishev? Uh, well, um, it was like Justin. It was, yeah. I listened to Jamil's. Uh, what was his? The strong, strong brew. Right. You know, that's actually where yeah, I got was, my. my I got brewing strong. Brewing strong. Right. Right. I got my inspiration to actually start uh, doing my uh, Berliner Weisses from listening to him. On that show, yeah. that's where it kind of all started. But that was way back in the day, so that's exactly, awesome. exactly. So yeah, so um, you know, I, yeah, the home brewing transition with me um, when I started at the company that I moved to Nashville for, I was home brewing. That's actually where I met Kevin and Jamie at that same company. We all kind of we had different paths within the company. We didn't necessarily work together, but it was a young company. We would close down shop early on Fridays. All the separate teams would go and get some beers kind of kick back and just uh, relax for the last hour or so of the week and uh, i remember one day seeing a very tall gentleman walking through the aisles carrying a six-pack of zombie dust Ooh. and that was back in I don't know, 2012 maybe when not many people knew what zombie dust was so right. i was like I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go introduce myself to that guy uh, and it turned out being jamie and so we just kind of started talking and it was it took a few years really for us to we would share homebrew and just kind of chat craft beer that sort of thing but um, i was homebrewing that whole time and and finally, we all kind of at one point got together and said, "Let's let's open a brewery." So that's amazing. What, so, what were you guys doing for your day jobs at that time? Yeah, it was a like a third party sales company, so we kind of contract with uh, larger clients to take over their recurring revenue sales. Okay. So it was very much a desk jockey, cubicle type, you know, glass <laughs> office uh, company. A um, lot of dialing the phone, that that sort of thing. Not the most exciting. No, no. I'll, I, I mean. I worked behind a, in the cubicle for 15 years doing accounting. So <laughs> I feel you on that one. Um, so how did the service source IPO make open a brewing more than just a dream? How, how did that all come together? Really? That, that service source deal. Yeah. So, you know, being the employees of the company prior to the IPO, especially Kevin and Jamie, they actually moved to Nashville to open up the Nashville service source office from San Francisco. Right. Very tenured employees. Um, the IPO was really, I mean, it was a very exciting thing for a young company, especially for, it was a very young workforce. So it was cool to be a part of that. And, I, you know, as you kind of work up in management, things like that, you know, you get some some shares and things that um, as the company is doing better, just kind of helps your financial situation. And it was able to at least give us a little bit of comfort um, as far as money to, to kind of start a brewery. We right. still bootstrapped the the heck out of our original location you know we started on a hand-me-down like we were the third owner of a psycho brew system but uh it was it was nice that you know we worked at a company that kind of gave us the, the ability to at least feel somewhat confident taking that leap so you opened the original location where i think we we've collabed with you at right no that was our that's our current production warehouse like okay. we had just moved into that when y'all were here that was us you see in nashville okay. um yeah our original location was a four barrel system it was actually like a psycho brew stand right it was like the two two barrel systems side by side <laughs> i have to okay. stagger my two barrel brews by 30 minutes knock out in the same fermenter each day oh, um, nice. that, that sort of setup with a single walled fermenters in a cool fermentation room um so you moved into this new location, but you guys have a, an additional location now on top of that? Yeah, so our original spot where we started brewing on um, a small system, that's our that's tap room only now. Okay. So we basically, 
you know, it, it seems like two, it's kind of three locations we have. We have a production warehouse where all liquid is made. Right. We have a tap room that's disconnected, but directly beside that production warehouse on the west side of Nashville. Right. And then our original location is on the east side of town, about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes apart. And that is tap room only. So how, how many, uh, when you guys got, I mean, originally, how many barrels were you guys doing out of that four barrel you think and where do you, where do you think your, where do you think your production is now so our original annual uh, production barrelage wise was like three 320 or 330 okay. uh, I, I believe uh, we are going for we're, we're on track right now it's in our plan uh, to do 4,000 barrels this year oh, nice. in our current warehouse okay okay and as far as the business model goes is most of that going out like the front door like either through your tap rooms and like on-site like can and bottle sales or are you guys also mixing in some distro as well into that yeah so we we do some distro um obviously you know any brewery who who wants to be a very successful business you kind of sell as much beer over your counters as you possibly can right we've had times when we're selling everything we possibly can make over the counter and then as we've grown, we just put in two 60-barrel fermenters um, during COVID. Now that we're starting to make these larger quantities, it's just not feasible to sell you know, 600 cases or, or 120 kegs of one brand right. through your own tap room. So at that point, we're starting to get a little bit of distribution. It's mostly um, we can self-distribute in Tennessee within your county of production. Oh. So for us, that's basically the whole greater Nashville area. Um, anything outside of Nashville that you see in, in Tennessee – we do have a distributor for right. Um, and then just to keep things kind of fun, you know, we've built a lot of great relationships with breweries and distributors all over the country because of all the festivals, you know, like Lake Fest, things like that we've done. Um, where we have a, a distributor in Florida because of y'all actually, where we'll send, you know, it's a couple pallets a month that just goes out. So we have about 11 or 12 different markets. Nice. And it's just a fun way for us to kind of send some, some beer out, keep our fans excited. Um, Remind them who we are, you right. know, especially right. like not traveling for a year and a half with COVID. So it's a really fun way for us to kind of sprinkle things throughout the U.S., but it's it's pretty, pretty scarce. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're talking to Jared Welch of Southern Gris Brewing Company. What would you say you, your guys' beer model would be? Like, what styles of beers are you guys brewing for, like, the consumers? Like, what's... Versus, like, what did you start with, and what do you see it trending towards now? Yeah, so we started started very um, like kind of kettle like fruity kettle sour and IPA driven, and then we would also make. I mean, I love like saisons, table beers, things like that. I used to make a lot of those at the, at the old spot. Um, sales have kind of dictated. I don't necessarily make too many of those anymore. So. Now, it's funny, we actually have, um, we call it, like, our meme sticker. And it says, you you designed it. It's with coconut beers, and fruited sours, hazy IPAs, and pastry stouts. Yep. And then this <laughs> year, an ampersand yep. kind of design. Uh, and then this year, we actually uh, slightly altered it, where we took, like, a, a handwritten font and added in Christy Boys at the bottom. Uh, now we're really good longer. So, <laughs> yes. um, you know, with our with our production uh, system upgrading, we've been able to start cranking out lagers, and that's been that's been awesome. I am blown away and ecstatic at how well our lager series have have sold. So it's it's that's been really fun for us the past year and a half. It's pretty interesting though to actually see the growth of craft lagers because yeah. we started doing them right before COVID hit, and then last year during COVID, we actually dove kind of head in and started knocking out more sours but i also at the same time brought in that you know um the fooder so we actually brought in a 15 barrel fooder just to do loggers so it does primary fermentation in wood and then does you know it's loggering in in stainless but it takes off i mean it, it's crazy to see whatever we put in that wood whatever style logger it is it does very well and it's it's really interesting to me to see it kind of take off and it's great because it's a great doorway for people that are so used to drinking macros to actually have a better version of of these loggers to actually drink and understand that there are much better you know loggers out there than so said name brands that are just all over any of the supermarkets or anything like that 
it's, inter- it's, it's interesting too for, for us at least we're seeing obviously it's a good intro to people that are maybe dipping their toes into craft beer to yeah. make that connection with the lagers but we're also seeing a lot of you know these craft beer nerds and people that are still buying the fruited sours and the pastry styles kind of adding these lagers to their purchases as just you know another alternative and you know kind of another choice when they're drinking at home Oh yeah, um, absolutely. You know, cleanser when you go to a pastry stout tasting and you have thirteen barrel age adjuncted uh, bottles. <laughs> well, I th- so. you know, I mean, I think you can only drink so much of that, and I'm not going to ever downplay it because the stouts are still one of my favorite styles. But at the end of the day, you know, I live in Miami, so and and we've always found that every you know doesn't matter what time of year it is down here, people will drink pastry stouts. They will drink twelve percent stouts, but. They also have been at, like you said, adding on a four pack of the loggers because you know, dude, it's ninety five degrees outside. Are you really going to go outside and, and crush a twelve percent, you know, coconut yep. pastry stout? Probably not. You know, so you're probably yep. going to end up drinking a nice crispy lager that's you know four to five percent. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, you know, we were, we were talking the other day. We're getting ready to throw this festival, this beer festival that is literally in the middle of Tennessee summer. Uh, that's all that logic. <laughs> no, yeah, but hey. <laughs> Right, but we talked about and, this. That we, because it's funny because like, I, I drew inspiration for that idea from Florida. It's when I used to I used to travel down to Hunapu's Day. Right. Um, obviously, Wake Fest. Coming to your guys' brewing with y'all, we brewed a big stout and doing yep. the bottle is at, at your spot. It's like, man, there's just something about commiserating over just hot, sticky, thick beers yep. in the, the, the weather. So, Oh, no, yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it's a fun thing. It seems counterintuitive, but... It's silly, and we like to embrace that. Well, no, I, I mean, we agreed upon this. Like, it was, we're also doing, we're not doing a, a festival, but we're going to be doing, you know, stout drops for, like, the next six weeks. No one else is really doing that in the country, and I think it's a missed opportunity. Like, stouts are still a big major player. People love stouts, you know, and it, it still needs to be celebrated, you know, just because hazy IPAs and these smoothie sours have taken over pretty much the market. I don't think it should be forgotten yeah. about. I think it's all like, you know, with time, everything comes back around full circle. So it's definitely. Exactly. Um, so I, I know Nashville has really become a, a hot tourist destination. How has that fueled your guys's growth? You know, with all, with all the tourists coming in through there. Yeah. I mean, it's great. We, I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, you walk into our tap room, either tap room on any, day you're probably going to see at least one or two bachelor or bachelorette parties um it's crazy um there's a uh, really good customer of ours for the longest time he just kind of started his own business here it's pretty cool where he created a a trolley that all it does is just drive in a loop and hits like 10 or 12 breweries you can buy a day pass and it's this beer beer tourism is a thing that you know i feel like for me in my early days of craft was like romanticized with Asheville, North Carolina, Portland, Oregon, uh, places in Michigan that it's really cool to kind of see that start to develop in Nashville. Now we've gotten to be a part of that. And it is, it's, it's definitely a big thing. We see a lot of tourists coming in. We also see, you know, just outside of even the beer tours and Nashville's obviously it's a huge tourist market, right? You know, they got Broadway, all the honky tonks, people are just coming here in droves for that. And I think a lot of people we see, because, you know, our locations are both, you know, a 10-minute Uber from, like, downtown Broadway. Right. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of people that maybe spend a couple of days down there. They get burnt out. They want to get out of, like, the, the main kind of hustle bustle. And, uh, you know, a lot of those people are coming to our tap rooms when they're in town. That's awesome. So, I mean, you definitely – I mean, it definitely has helped fueling your growth. I mean, do, do you guys see adding – another production facility or another tap room in the near future or what what's kind of like your growth timeline you guys are, are looking at yeah so uh tap room number three has definitely been kind of a discussion point um for us for at least i mean it kind of started pre-covid and then got very much put on hold when when covid happened um as of right now actually the big move we're making is our original spot in east nashville we are uh, vacating that location. We were renting it. Um, it was in this amazing neighborhood that we still want to be a part of. But, you know, we just got to a point as we grow as a business where we were ready to take kind of the, the next step there. So we actually bought a building Ooh, okay. that we own um, in the same neighborhood. You know, it's about a mile probably as the crow flies from our current spot. 
Um, so we are working on building that out as a little bit more bigger, nicer, two patios, going to have a full kitchen. It's going to be a little bit more of a, uh, without being pretentious and elevated experience compared to our current like neighborhood kind of bootstrapped um, uh. down home tap room. So that's the big move that we're making right now. Construction started a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to stay positive and, and will it into existence that it'll be open in October. Nice. So that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. But um, you know, with construction, we'll see how that goes. So that's our big focus right now. Once that gets stood up and it's humming and we're really happy with the way business is, is rocking there. I think we'll then revisit kind of uh, what our growth plan looks like from a production standpoint, as well as potentially, you know, tapper number three. So, And I know on a side note, like this is also important in my realm because I also believe in like the same thing and uh, enjoy the same thing, you know, because man does not live on beer alone. What would you say, I mean, you're in Tennessee, so classically be termed whiskey, but uh, <laughs> what would be some of your, your favorite whiskeys, bourbons, that you guys are, because I know you guys are pretty partnered up with a, a bottle shop or a barrel picking program, right? Yeah, so uh, Nashville Barrel Company is this group here that they're actually getting ready to open their own location. Oh. And they pick some of the best MGP juice I've, I've had. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So they, we do a lot of stuff with them. They give us a lot of barrels. We get some really, really wet um, rye and bourbon barrels from them that's, that's next level as far as like you know what we're drinking if it's not national barrel company um i man <laughs> i used to think before i got into bourbon that or, or whiskey that jack daniels was you know not really my thing and then i started trying their heritage rye stuff their barrel strength uh single barrel bottles and i'm actually a huge like jack daniel barrel strength is absolutely incredible um and then we're also big fans of Willet. Of course. I mean, anything Buffalo Trace. Oh, 1792, yeah. Really? Uh, we love, oh, man, the Sweet Weeks. Yeah, we, we did like 1792. Yeah, Kyle here, bro, actually, he, he got me on the 1792 train. I don't think I've ever had it until he gave me some about a year ago, and now it's him and I uh, love okay. 1792. But. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give 1792 a shot, and definitely uh, I might have to uh, – take your recommendation on the jack daniels then yeah man i mean hey if you need me to send you a package i can get a, a single barrel and, <laughs> you know the 1792 small batch is a great value model but right. you know you look for the bottle and bond the single barrel the full proof the sweet wheat that, that sort of stuff that's where they shine of course but, um, yeah so oh, what I, are you i'll never i'll never say no to uh a package of uh whiskey or <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? i'll never no. say um honestly you know i have always been um as, as I've kind of gone along, it's funny, but I mean, I really got into Willet heavy, but yeah, I think drinking at those alcohol proofs, I can only drink so much, you sure. know, I mean, there's a lot of complexity uh, to those bourbons, but, um, man, I mean, even for me, I'll go back to even some, you know, Woodford double Oak, um, oh, yeah. you know, uh, just along those lines, um, I mean, I hate to say it, like if I'm just out and, you know, and if all they got is, is, is bullet or bullet rye, then I can roll with that too. So, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's a little easier drinking, but, uh, I think those would probably be my go-tos now, you know, yeah, cause you. It, and save the willet for, you know, special occasions. <laughs> do, y'all, do y'all down in Florida get a lot of those like store picks or do you have private groups that do barrel picks down there? Cause that is crazy up here. I, 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 it's it's kind of happening. I mean, it's on a smaller scale. I mean, really, if you want to find that stuff, uh, you really have to hunt for it. And okay. it's not going to happen at, like, the total wines, like the bigger, you know, uh, chains. You really have – I mean, I know down in, like, Kendall and stuff, there's definitely the, like, the liquor stores that do barrel picks, but it's like a single barrel, and it happens not so often, not like up by you guys. I wish it happened more often because, it, you know, I'd definitely be more involved in that for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that's been really fun, kind of developing a, a bourbon and whiskey palette for Kyle and I is, you know, we share so many bottles. And it's really fun to get, you know, Woodford Double Oak, some of the different barrel picks or even Maker's Marks in their private selection to do the different state finishes. And just tasting those side by side. And right. when you actually have them next to each other and they're different single barrel expressions, right. it's really, really cool to see um, 
what those nuanced differences are. And we're actually trying to kind of bring a little bit of that into our stout program. Oh. I think Kyle and I have drawn a lot of inspiration from okay. us really diving deep into the bourbon world the past year or so right. to help develop our, our barrel like stout That's stuff. awesome, man. I got, I got one last question for you. Who in Nashville makes the best hot chicken? Oh, easy. Easy. 400 degrees. Really? Really? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Okay. 400 degrees is, and it's pretty conveniently located, uh, close to our brewery. So <laughs> okay. usually when we do collabs in town, um, that's, that's the go-to spot. So next time you're up here, if you haven't had 400 degrees, we're going to get 400 degrees. Okay. All right. Uh, that's why I was asking. I'm like, I, we got to get back to Nashville anyway, but I know it's always, yep. you know, that is a, a good question, you know, because you guys are up there and it's always a heated debate of like who makes the best Nashville hot chicken. So, and there's, there's a lot of other good places out there. There's a good, uh, a, a good buddy of ours started doing a pop-up called brave idiot around town. It's right. just pop-up based right now, but I'm telling you, man, his, his hot chicken is up there as well. It's pretty spectacular. So well. we have, we can take you on a little hot chicken tour next time you're up here. If you want. We can bring your tums. I'll bring the tums. I'll bring the tums, dude. <laughs> chicken and just absolutely uh, all the regrets that's awesome brother well hey i really appreciate your guys's time man thank you very much for coming on the show thank you so absolutely. much yeah man it's been uh it's been a pleasure and uh hopefully we see you guys soon man thank awesome thanks guys take care cheers you're listening to the beer hour with jonathan wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture Our next guest is the face of Cantineros, or Cuban bartenders in the United States. He is one of the most influential and respected bartenders in America. He travels the globe as a guest bartender for spirit suppliers and restaurants. He also competes in international bartending competition. His awards and accolades are numerous, including the coveted Spirited Awards for Best Bartender in America, which he won in 2019. He is the co-owner and co-founder of Cafe La Trova in Miami, which won GQ Magazine's Best New Restaurant Award in 2019. Welcome to the Beer Hour. Julio Cabrera. How are you doing, man? Thank you. I'm doing great. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. So um, first, can you kind of give us a definition for the audience of beer drinkers out there? What a cantinero and what that would be the difference between the cantinero and an average bartender would be. Yeah, cantinero is the, the word that we use to call professional Cuban bartenders. I mean, okay. in Cuba, when, when you refer to a professional bartender, you say cantineros. It's something that is, uh, you know, if we go back to late 1800s, when the Spanish people start migrating to Cuba, they start bartending. They call, they call them, themselves cantineros because they used to work in cantinas. Cantinas was right. a place where they used to serve food and beers and some uh, wines at that time. Not cocktails, but it was a kind of cantina with food and all that. And they call themselves cantineros, people who work in cantinas. But they were very professional, very stylish in w- when they work in. So the way they dress, the way they uh, shake the cocktails and, and prepare everything behind the bar, it was very different. Uh, a lot of technique, a lot of different techniques. And they call themselves cantineros. So later in 1924, uh, the cantineros were very popular in Cuba because, you know, the prohibition what's happening in the united states right from 19 to 33 so during prohibition a lot of people from the united states were flying to cuba to discover bars and and uh, cuban drinks and uh they found the cantineros behind the bar really you know like uh elegant and the technique and everything and they created like an association it was the first bartending association in the world in 1924, even before oh, wow. uh, United Kingdom was the second one. It was in, in 33. So they created that association that became very popular because they set like uh, standards and rules to be a cantinero. And still today in Cuba, we respect, or they respect all the rules. And that's what we're trying to do uh, at Cafe La Trova. So when we open Cafe La Trova here in Miami, uh, the most important thing with the music and the food and the cocktails was, was the cantinero style. Right. So we wanted to preserve the cantinero style 100%. The way we dress, the way we work, the technique, uh, no facial hair. No, I mean, like... Also, oh, there, there's like an actual very strict, strict guideline. Yeah, no visible tattoos. And if you see some of the cantineros, 
no visit, no visible tattoos, no mustaches, no ear, earrings, no, no nothing like very strict, like a hundred years ago. And oh we, wow! And we we're still doing it. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. So, do you prefer to be called a bartender rather than a mixologist? What do you say? It's different. I mean, bartender is the guy who who made drinks right. for people who sell drinks. Right. Mixologist is the one who create those drinks, who mix a lot of things, innovation behind the bar. So sometimes they are just creating drinks for bars and and for all the people, but they don't work behind the bar. Ah. And sometimes the mixologists they do work behind the bar. And they create their own drinks. They are both bartender, bartenders and mixologists. Ah, but mixologists is the one who create everything because they understand perfect every flavor of the spirits they have behind the bar. The mixers, the, they know everything about the flavors, vermouth and like everything. The, like the, the combinations, yeah, how everything yeah. goes together. In the kitchen. It's like a chef. Right, they are, exactly. Yeah, chef behind the bar. Ah, okay, yep. okay. How old were you, would you say you were, when you mixed your first proper cocktail? Uh, what, and what was it? Uh, well, <laughs> a long time ago. I, I, I started bartending when I was 25. But my first competition, my first competition was like uh, when I was uh, exactly like 31 years old. So my first competition was 31. So at that time, I started creating cocktails. Okay. Not really two mixologies like we know the cocktails now that we use a lot of things from the right. kitchen and, yeah. and different weird uh, flavors. But it was, you know, like simple, but with the ingredients we could found in Cuba at that time was in 95. And uh, yeah, it was when I started doing drinks. But my first, my first uh, as a mixologist, right. after I, I had to, you know, after I went to New York to study with the best people in, in, in the country, Willie Shine included. And uh, when I came back in Senora Martinez in 2008 is when I started creating real cocktails, you know, with uh-huh. the ingredients Michelle Bursting had at, 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 in the kitchen. And, and so at that time was real, real mixologist drinks in 2008 here in Miami. So I guess, uh, I mean, part of the question should have been like, went along the lines back in the day, did you realize that this is something that you want to do as a career? Yep. Yeah, um, definitely, because I studied something else. I, I studied something else in the university. I went to the university for five years, and uh, I was agricultural engineer. I am engineer okay. in agricultural. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. I specialized in citrus, coffee, and sugar cane. Okay. Also tobacco, but tobacco it was not close to my area, so I specialized in citrus right. and coffee. And I, the, and I this was, was all well in Cuba, though? In Cuba, yeah. Okay. And I was working in, in, in the mountains, on the mountains for some years as an engineer and coffee plantation and then citrus. And, yeah, at some point I, I realized I was not enjoying what I was doing because I was, like, alone all the time. You know, on my horse, going, <laughs> going in the on the mountains on my horse, talking to nobody. And my personality is is to to have to socialize, right? To interact have with rapport, people. interact with people and and music. Oh, if okay. I have music, I can I can do anything. So behind the bar, when I have music, I, I'm another another person. And and I found that hospitality, hotels, and and behind the bar. It was the place that uh, I could found, I could find myself, and I changed. Okay. In '89, I changed. I went to hospitality area, and then I asked for some courses because to be a cantinero, you have to go to school. It's not like oh, I want to be a cantinero, and you are a bar back one year and right. then bartender. To be a cantinero, that's one of the most important things. You have to go to school, and when you graduated, you you're able to, to go behind the bar. Oh, so wow. they teach you here. The teachers they teach you how to go, how to cut lime, oranges, how to prepare all the garnish, how to do everything, languages, a lot of things. So I went to school, and when I graduated, uh, I start as a bartender, oh. and and as a teacher at the same time. They. They want me to stay as a teacher in the school and say, okay, I want to stay as a teacher, but I want to be behind the bar at night. So I was doing both, and I enjoyed it. And at that time, when I went my first time behind the bar, that was in, in 89, I discovered that that was 
what I wanted to do for the that rest of my life. That was like your passion. Life. Yeah, you found that it was, was my passion. passion. I was like, oh my God, this I enjoy it so much. I love it so much. And it's been 32 years. And still, still today, I go behind the bar. I enjoy it. It's like the first day. That's amazing. So do you have a preference of music that you would rather listen to while you prepare drinks? Or, I mean, do you have your playlist? Any, any, any kind of music. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what we have traditional Cuban music that I love and right. I dance salsa. But when I was working in high club, in nightclubs, yeah. high volume bars, yeah. in nightclubs, I mean, like uh, disco and, right. and, and, and techno, dance music, a, dance music, dance yeah. music. I mean, everything. I, lo I love every kind of music. Can you uh, kind of explain to, to me and, and to the listeners how, how do like cocktail competitions work how, do, how does it all work as a competition like when you go to a competition how does it go down it's a lot of details it's all about details and it's like uh, when you make a cocktail it should be balanced so in cocktail competition uh the presentation plus the cocktail plus the the personality the interaction with the guests i mean it's it's a lot of things a lot of details that determine the winner or how many points you lose or, or gain in, in a competition so You have to prepare, you know, the way you're going to, the speech, to yep. explain your inspiration about the cocktail. But you have to create, is the, mo the most important is the cocktail is, uh, itself. It should be a good cocktail. It's a cocktail that represents the spirit you use in, 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 in the competition. It should be balanced. It should be something that, you know, like, a, like a simple, but at the same time uh, with some innovation and, and, and creativity. But also the presentation, the technique used, you should prepare everything with a certain level, level of technique and the tools you use, the presentation, the setup, and the way you, you, you dress. It's a lot of, it's a lot of things. It's so, I mean, really, when you're, when you're preparing the cocktails, when we speak cocktail-wise, it, it is better to really have a balanced cocktail and let the spirit shine yeah. in that cocktail. Yeah. You do not want to muddle it up and cover it up you want that spirit to speak for itself in the cocktail exactly it's something that is a lot of points in a competition and uh if you uh doing a competition with a bourbon you yeah. when you try the cocktail it should be the bourbon there it's, right. it's not all their ingredients right so it's very important to understand that right so now. the ingredients complement the bourbon yeah you you have to use uh other mixers or other ingredients that complement the main spirit to use in the competition okay so i mean it would be kind of like being a chef i mean your your main component on the dish needs to shine and not be overshadowed by the accompaniments yeah exactly. right yeah exactly. so okay that's uh that's pretty interesting i mean and, and is there rounds to this i mean is it like uh you know they start off with like the you know go to basketball and you start with a 64 and you work your way down to the championship is that how it t typically goes some some competition yes because uh, some competition national competition they are like 54 competitors oh wow sometimes including canada and you have a first round it's the cocktail that you bring like the cocktail that you prepare home that you send that you submitted and oh it was selected okay. so you competed with that cocktail and after the first round for example 10 people advance to the final But the final is not with the same cocktail you brought. So the final is like a surprise. It's like a... They throw, they throw like, a monkey wrench at you. Yeah, yeah. no, they... It's like chopped. It's <laughs> they, like chopped. You have a basket yeah, and, uh, and they tell you, these are your ingredients. Yeah, Do something with they it. Ha they have a table with a lot of things, a lot of ingredients and, and, and spirits and mixers. They say, okay, you have 20 minutes to create a new cocktail with the things we have. On there. Oh wow! So you go to the table, you have a look, and say, "Okay, uh, this, this, this," and you have to create a cocktail on the fly. That's one of the options. The other is, okay, here you have a, a gift card of three hundred dollars. Go to a supermarket, buy whatever you want. Next supermarket, find whatever you can find there and make a cocktail. Uh, in thirty minutes, you have to be back here, and all, it, it's like that. Oh and, wow! And and sometimes you know, like a. It's, it's different. It's like a secret ingredient. Oh, you have to to make a cocktail with jo Greek jogger. It's I'm 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 telling right. you what I lived as a competitor. Really, all that. So you actually had to use Greek yogurt. All that, yeah. Say okay with, for example, with Blue Label or let's say a Scotch, a okay. nice Scotch. The competition w was with Scotch, and say okay, now you have to create a cocktail with that Scotch and Greek jogger. Really? Yeah. Oh my God! So everybody had to do. So what did they? So what did they do? 
I mean, then he started mixing. Oh my gosh. The the, <laughs> the, the, the Scotch Greek jugger and other ingredients, but that's that's the important how how to add some other ingredients to to make a good cocktail, and like that, you know, like a. On the table, a lot of cucumbers and mint and ah. strawberries, and you have to decide which one goes better with the spirits, and it is it, tricky. Wrong, right, because every spirit has a flavor profile. Yep. I mean, you know, whether it be bourbon with you know coconut and vanilla in the background with you know hits of uh, cinnamon or spice, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. depending on you know the scotch, you know whether it's peated or non, depending on the region that it's from. Same thing with tequila. So everything is going to have its proper pairings, I guess you could say. And that that's uh, a mixologist. That's the difference between mixologists and, and bartenders. Mixologists understand perfect what flavor goes with every spirit because they understand what you know, all the flavors, the spirit flavor and the mixers, what works better yes, with, right. every, with every ingredient. So mixologists have to, to understand that you're listening to the beer hour with jonathan wakefield we are talking to cantinero julio cabrera of cafe la trova um earlier this year you opened a mexican inspired beer garden in miami yep in miami lakes called chelas chelas uh does that mean that you are turning into a, a beer guy now per se <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love beer, and, uh, you know, one of my partners is specialist in beer, Mauricio. Right. So Mauricio is the guy who who knows m- much more than me about beers. But I love beers, and, and, and yes, we, we're trying to have a good amount of craft beer and, and local local breweries and all that. And, yeah, I'm, I'm like a coming into a new world for me right you know it's not just mixologies and cocktails it's also beer beer word and 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 it's different it's it's uh it's totally different a beer garden now than cafe la Torre. so so should we be expecting uh beer cocktails now as well probably probably yeah, yeah. okay you're gonna have to keep an eye out yeah. for that <laughs> so i mean you're you're just now getting into the beer world i mean i'm sure you've you've drank beer for a while and now really into the craft beer world which is really grown and grown and grown over the years uh and especially now with the amount of different ingredients almost kind of like what a mixologist i mean i i don't know if i would call us mixologist in a way it it might be that kind of avenue where it's you know we're using so many different ingredients for me i i draw a lot of inspirations from cocktails um and desserts uh, that's where we draw a lot of our inspiration for doing a lot of the beer styles that we do. Like we did a Blackberry Smash inspired beer. Um, we've done a Paloma, you know, inspired beer. I mean, we've done a lot of cocktail inspired beers, but it's really about finding that balance. So I think craft beer is catching on to that and, and trying to move forward is being more inspired by food and by cocktails to to kind of hit that avenue to kind of also play towards the cocktail drinkers as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I mean Yeah, I mean, you're opening a different world to people that may not normally drink beer, presenting them with a Paloma inspired beer. Right. Um, you know, maybe they do drink Palomas and then they want to try something different and and we turn them to the, to that. So yeah. There are there are a lot of breweries now um like creating beers with with uh cocktail flavors. Right. Like a zombie, zombie for example, the right. Paloma, like a, and it's really interesting. And now you know, like uh, one of the the tens now in 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 the cocktail world is uh, low ABV spirits, so low alcohol content spirits. Really? Yes. Yeah. It's it's going that duration, like uh, not just aperitif or aperitivo cocktails, uh, like a low low alcohol content. So cocktail with beers is is gonna be very interesting. Or oh, is very interesting because a lot of people are creating cocktail with with beers that low alcohol content. I mean, they probably they add something else like a tequila or, or bourbon, but just a little bit, and then they top it off with with beer. So, what would you say? I mean, now that you've kind of gotten into this world of the craft beers that you have tried, what what do you think you are some of your favorites so far? If you were to have a favorite. It's like about, styles, styles. I mean, I personally like uh, lager beer. Of course. Like a kind of yeah. lager, ale. 
But uh, I found like some IPAs really, really good, and people like I- IPAs a lot. It it is the number one selling yeah. beer style. Yeah, yeah. hands Pe- down. People people like IPAs, and it, it's dependent the IPA. It's dependent how yeah. hopey they are. Right, right. Yeah, but uh, people like IPAs, and and it's by far you know like a. But I personally like more like a lager, lager kind of beers. Okay, so you, you've had your favorite beer style. What would you say your favorite cocktail is to make? With, uh, with beer? No, no, no. Oh, just, okay. just your personal favorite. So you have, you know, you, you enjoy lagers. My, okay. Yeah. My personal cocktail to make, make I, I, I enjoy making every cocktail because every right. cocktail needs, <laughs> needs a different right. technique. So right. if I'm right. making a Manhattan, like uh, I used to, to make for Rocco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like to. He stir. looks like a Manhattan drinker. <laughs> I like to stir, you know, like the way I stir the Manhattan, how long I stir, and then to flame the orange peel on top. It's a lot of techniques that I enjoy it a lot. To, and you would flame the orange peel to release the oils. Yep. Right. To caramelize the oils and right. on top of the cut. So when when I make the Sazerac, I love the Sazerac because I when I rinse the glass with the absinthe, I throw the glass going around on the air. So it's it's, it's a lot of. When I make a daiquiri, I enjoy it because, you know, it's a lot of details making right. my daiquiri that, you know, that people like it and makes it different. And, it, I mean, I enjoy a lot of cocktails. I can't say one cocktail that I prefer to make. So if you had only one cocktail to drink, what would you? What would be your preference of cocktail to drink then? <laughs> Dry martini. Ah, okay. So uh, gin or vodka? Gin. All okay. the time. All, all the, the time. time? No. With, with vermouth? Yes, and absolutely. Otherwise, uh, it's not a martini. Are we, are, we going, are we going lemon peel or olives? Lemon peel. Okay, okay, okay. So I, I can get down with that. With, I, I mean, with orange bitters or uh, grapefruit bitters. Really? Yeah, always, okay. always. Okay. Yeah. Let's shift uh, avenues here. How old were you when you left Cuba? I was 40, but I, I stayed two years in, in Mexico before coming here. So when I got here, I was forty-two. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. And with every in in the landscape that we're in right now, with everything that's going on in Cuba, what is kind of your hope for your motherland as the winds of change begin to swirl? What would be your hope of what to happen? Everything I want and uh, what I pray for is freedom for Cuba. I mean, everybody wants a free Cuba or a Cuba Libre. After 62 years of communism, destroying all the country and separating families, uh, we really need to uh, to have freedom in Cuba and to have a uh, democracy again. And uh, what we have is a uh, a regime like a dictator, di- dictators in right. Cuba. A lot of dictators, and that they they killing the people, they killing yeah. the Cuban people, and then everything I want is a. Uh, Free Cuba and uh, with human rights. There is not human rights in Cuba. If you don't think the way they, the government think, you 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 go into jail, to in mm. jail. So that's why I escaped Cuba because I I couldn't. I was not agree with the system and I didn't think in the same way. So that's why I left with my whole family, and uh, my whole family went two years after me in Mexico. We got together and we crossed the border here, but. Uh, now I have my mom. It's the only things I have in Cuba. My mom is 88, but oh, wow. they had no food, no medicine. She's asking for uh, for medicine to me, but I can send it. Jeez. I cannot send even money. But if I send money, they, they can They take it anyway? Yeah, they, they take a percentage. But uh, if I send dollars, they take, the, they take the dollars and they give her like some pesos, but taking the 30% oh, wow. 30% uh, fee or something. But That's anyway, crazy. she cannot do anything with, with dollars. Oh. No medicine, not even Tylenol. Oh, wow. Not antibiotics. Tylenol, something for, for headache, nothing. Oh. A food, forget about it. Not even a sweet potato. Oh, she was telling me, I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming with a sweet potato now. Mm. So it's ADA. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna see her again because wow. now I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to Cuba with everything that I'm, do, I'm doing here in right. social media and going to Calle Ocho to protest and everything. If I go to Cuba at the April, they're gonna. You they're think gonna, they're gonna yeah, take yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're gonna take me. So no, he doesn't think he. They he will take you. They're watching. They're watching everything. And yeah. I'm doing everything. A couple of days ago at uh, Times Square, I, I did something too and. 
I haven't posted yet. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do all my best to, to help the Cuban people that are still in Cuba fighting. They are the real heroes. Right. There, there definitely that. needs to be a change yeah. that happens. I mean, it, it definitely needs we to need happen. A change. We need and, a change. And how, I hope it happens soon. I mean, you would agree, Raymond. No, absolutely. Being born here um, and having a large influence of the Cuban culture being from Miami and being born here, it's, it's imperative. You know, we've always known the struggles of Cuban people, but it, now it's coming to a head because of how intense it's gotten. They're, they're taking away the internet, you know, uh, phones, crazy. Yeah. you have no connection to the real world. So right. now people are seeing these images, not just in Miami, but all over, all over. Yeah. Everywhere yeah. I go, people yeah. are talking about that, and, and, and they really, if they had another perception about Cuba or something, now they change. Now everybody realized the true, the true uh, monster that uh, they have in the government there. Well, I mean, we, we're really hoping that there, that change is coming and then that it happens soon Hopefully, for yes. the Cuban people, and uh, we, do, we keep you guys in our hearts and, and minds and, and pray that it, it does happen soon. But I do want to switch back to an upbeat thing here. Do you have a surefire cure for a hangover? Ah. <laughs> That's There's a cantinero. What, what do they, hold on. Cure. What do they call a hangover in Cuba? Resaca. Resaca. Okay. In, in Puerto Rico, it's raton. Raton. Yeah. Oh, resaca is everything you have. Yeah. The hangover. Yeah. yeah. The following day, headache, and you feel like crap. Yeah. Crap. And. I mean, I, I can, uh, Bloody Mary with vodka, Bloody Mary is really good. <laughs> yeah, yes. with vodka. Yeah, yeah. Bloody Mary with vodka, that one is, uh, it is uh, for me, one of, one of the best Q4. Really? Four. Yeah. Well, because you're so talking it, about cocktails. Right, right, right. My last hangover was in 96. Oh, wow. December 30th. Okay. December 30, 96. That okay. was my last hangover. I've been drinking. Since then, all every day, right? But with moderation. That's that's the key, right? Drink. I'm drinking every day, just one or two drinks. One, but yeah, but you sound with like moderation. Me. Sound like me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my last hangover was in '96. But yeah, I do recommend for people to to have like a, a boy Mary. Talking about cocktails, that's right, my right. remedy. No, I've heard that. I've heard that more than a few times. That it's a great cure for. But for not him. cocktails. I I think uh, coffee. Strong coffee, not like uh, American or black coffee, like a uh, like an shot, espresso, like a double double espresso or something. Get that that kick. Yeah, that one is is something that I, I recommend. Okay, well, uh, I'm gonna have to. Well, if I ever get a hangover again, I'm gonna definitely have to try <laughs> the Bloody Mary. So, and now that we know, but I want to really thank you very much for coming on the show. This Absolutely. has been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, thank you for the invitation. Yes, it's thank really you for your time, brother. A pleasure. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests Jared Welch and Julio Cabrera my co-host Maria Cabre, and my producer Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. We're here each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturday at 8 p.m., Sunday at 1 p.m., and next Friday at 2 a.m. You can also find repeat episodes on the SiriusXM app. Remember, people, the thirst is real.